The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree and those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, if you are here visiting with us on Mother's Day and you think, gosh, that's pretty heavy. There's no roses or chocolates in that. Maybe it's also a reminder why the gig of a mother is so tough, right? Because you've got to raise people like this. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, I've said that Romans is a little bit like a meal at a fine dining restaurant, Um, the kind of meal that you know is just, it's going to be rich and complex and it's well worth taking slowly to really make the most of it. Well, last week we rejoiced in, in the sweetness of the gospel, that the gospel is the power of God to save, to rescue everyone who believes, because in the gospel... The righteousness of God is it's revealed, a righteousness that we could never earn, but it's freely given to everyone who will receive it by faith. Well, that, that was the sweet starter, but it kind of raises a whole bunch of questions. After all, why do we need saving? Why is there no other way than the gospel? Why do we need God's righteousness? And the next bite that we've just taken, 
ooh, it's got a sour edge to it. You know, the kind of the feeling that you, you get at the back of the palate and, 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 oh, it's a bit sour. Because with many things in life, to understand this, I think we need to be shocked. And God knows that that's the case for us. I want you to think about cigarette packaging. Joel, are we able to get up a, the next slide for us? Cigarette packaging uh, is pretty good at shocking us, isn't it? Um, public health regulators have worked out that this is what you need. You need, you need shocking images of, of mouth cancer and of debilitated people. Or, or think about the shocking attempts to get us to drive safely on our roads. Um, those ads that just start out with someone on their way to the supermarket only to get wiped out by a, a speeding driver. There are lots of things that we get complacent about and we need a jarring kind of shock to get our attention. And in the transition from Romans verse, uh, ch- chapter 1, verse 17 that we read last week to verse 18 that we read this week, we have that shock. We read in verse 17, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith, because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is being revealed because the wrath of God is also being revealed. Thanks, Joel. It it is shocking to us, I think, to talk about the wrath of God. But we must... You know, around Christian circles, oftentimes you might hear that we need to be saved from our sins, but Romans 1 says, actually, no, we need to be saved from God. (laughs) Because God is angry, and rightly so. Now, we need to be clear about how we understand this. If If we read the Bible, we see the wrath of God described in many ways, in many parts of the Bible, and it's important to note that time and time again, we are talking about something very different from our own human anger. God is not insecure, he's not unpredictable, he's not bitter and resentful, he doesn't fly off the handle in rage. When the Bible speaks of the wrath of God, it's his measured, fair, controlled anger at sin and injustice. It is exactly the right kind of anger that's actually a necessary component of love. Because a love that just doesn't care, well, that, that's cold and, and distant, that's no love at all. So as we make our way through Romans, it is important that when we talk about the wrath of God, we sit with that, we wrestle with that, because God has chosen to talk to us about it. And we need to come to terms with it, and the reasons for it, the consequences of it. And we'll actually see that even on Mother's Day, this is actually good news. Now to help us do it, the passage that we've just read, it's got two main parts that you can see broken down for us up here. Verse 18 to 23 talks about the the core issue and then 24 to 32, well it's actually the really shocking death spiral and the spiral is an image that Paul uses there that follows out of that. So let's have a look at the first part, the, the heart of the human problem which Paul sums up as our failure to treat God as God. You see, as we've just read, God is angry and Paul sums up what he's angry about, the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. You might say, well, what is the truth that's being suppressed? It's the truth that God is there 
and that he is worthy of our worship. That's really what Paul sums up for us in verse 19 and 20. Worth having a read of it there for you because it says that since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, they've been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Friends, this is the central truth of our universe, as Lauren reminded us, that, that there's enough out there to show us all that, that there is a God behind it. Now, it's helpful to say here that, that Paul doesn't overstate the case. He doesn't say we're going to know everything there is to know about God, but simply that there is enough to know that there is a God who is different to and separate from everything else. Verse 20, his eternal power, that there, there is something beyond creation, before the universe. His eternal power and his divine nature. That is to say, he is supernatural. There's something beyond nature. That much we can see from the stars in the sky, from the veins on the leaf of a tree. If you're a doctor and you've had the privilege like I have to, to learn about the wonder of the human eye or the ear, it's, it's just a marvel. And so no one can, can claim ignorance and no one has any excuse for the way that we respond. Well, how do we respond? Verse 21 to 23 sums up the heart of the human problem. Because although they knew God, which is just to say enough to know that he was there and responsible for everything else we see, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. This is the core issue for us all. And even just with a moment's reflection, we know it's our issue. That none of us can say that we have given God the respect or the thanks that he deserves. And understanding this, that's, it's like understanding the difference between a disease and its symptoms. Like a headache. A headache is a symptom, right? But a headache could be caused by dehydration. You just need a little bit more water. Or high blood pressure that needs to be brought under control. Or a brain tumour that could kill you. And it is vital to get the diagnosis right because you treat each one of these conditions in very different ways. And God is being very kind to us in this really confronting passage because he's taking us right to the diagnosis at the core of our being, our failure to respect and to thank God as he deserves. Now, sin, there's a Bible word, right? It's certainly not one that's very popular outside of Christian circles these days. Well, this is the Bible's simplest definition of sin. That it's our shared human condition. That none of us have given God the respect nor the thanks that he deserves. Everything else that we might call sin, well, they are really sins. They're the symptoms of our deepest diagnosis. But none of us are very excited about that diagnosis. And so we suppress the truth about God such that we fail to, to respect and thank him and, and that has immediate consequences as unpacked in verse 21. Our, our thinking becomes futile, our hearts are darkened, there's a self-deception that goes on about what is really wisdom and what is really foolishness. Our whole ability to make sense of life and the world and our relationships, they're all thrown into chaos by that core problem of our attitude towards God. 
So friends, what does it actually mean to glorify God and to thank him as he deserves? I think it's day-to-day stuff. As I was reflecting on this this week, I remember back to a day in year 12 when I was really struggling with the anxieties of life that, let's be honest, heaps of year 12 students face. And I'm so thankful to God for my dad who pointed me to something profoundly simple. The wonder of a butterfly. The wonder of a butterfly in the midst of my stress about year 12 exams and what am I going to do with my life and everything. Because it was a great reminder of the glory of God who would create something as complex and beautiful and fragile as a butterfly. That he is glorious, but that he can be trusted. That in my stress I could see so many reasons to be thankful for him. Starting with a butterfly. And as life goes on, I'm reminded again and again that my capacity to stress, my tendency to grumble, they are both indicators of how much I need to keep learning these lessons. But when I find myself complaining, I need to pause and to consider the things that I can be thankful for. And not in just some sort of, you know, hashtag blessed way, as if I'm just, I'm just thankful. Who are people thankful to? The universe? No, we have a knowledge of the God who we can be thankful for too. The one who's given me everything I have. I don't want to just be blessed, thankful. Let's be thankful to him. So let's teach our kids to marvel at God's creation. Joel, we've got a picture of a butterfly for us. Whatever we're doing, let's delight in the beauty of this good earth. We've got a picture of those stars that we can pause and wonder at. Let's take time to thank God. We've got a beautiful picture and reminder of what's just down the road from us at Brighton Jetty. It is day-to-day stuff. Thanks, Joel, one more. Because our heart's tendency is to fail to give God the glory and the thanks that he is due. And then everything spirals from that. So we read of the first exchange that we make in verse 23. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal things. And we can surely see how offensive this is, right? The emphasis that Paul has is that God is alone, immortal, the source of life. Everything else is just perishing. God is the source of life. And we're made to be in relationship with him and to enjoy his glory. To be in relationship with the being who is at the center of the universe... But instead, we turn our backs on him. We chase after all of his reflections. At the risk of trivialising it, I was thinking it's, it's like being invited into a relationship with a master craftsman, an incredible artist. But actually, we just treat him like a vending machine, want nothing to do with him, and we just try and satisfy ourselves with with his works of art, his paintings. You see, that is the great exchange that we make in the depth of our being. In our rejection of God as God, we exchange his eternal glory for fleeting trivialities. And, and Paul wants us to see, God wants us to see, through what we've just read, the, the death spiral that follows. It should be truly shocking. 
Now, to be clear, as we read into this, you know, Paul is not stepping you know, the life of each individual person through this, as if we all begin in step one, suppressing the truth, we move through step two, which is sexual immorality, and then on to step three, which is murder. It's not sort of anticipating that that's where we're all going. Equally, it's also not a summary of human history, as if step one was somehow identified about 3,000 years ago and then there was this particularly nasty stage around step two a thousand years ago and we're right in the middle of step three now. No, no, it doesn't work that way either. This isn't a personal journey or a, a kind of a chronological history flowchart, but it is our story. It's the story that plays out actually in each life and in each society across the span of human history, that the core issue is our fundamental rejection of God, our failure to respect and thank Him as He deserves, and all of the consequences that follow. So, Joel, we've got another reminder of the outline for us, because we're jumping into the second part, verse 24 to 32. The problem of the human heart, and we see repeated three times over, God gave them over. Thanks, Joel. First, in verse 24, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. Now, there's a couple of things to note right there. The first thing is that God is active in this. He's not just passively stepping back and let humanity you know, jump off the cliff. This is God actively giving over. It's an expression of his anger at sin and his judgment. And it actually implies for us, second point to note, that that God's default position is not to give us over. That God is rich in mercy. His default position is to hold us back, to restrain. His default position is, is patience and forbearance that we don't take ourselves over the cliff. And I think the other implication of this is that God's wrath, as as terrible as it sounds, it is restrained. Yeah, God would be justified in taking the toggle off the big red destruct button and starting again. But in his restraint, he doesn't reveal his wrath with total annihilation, but with this gradual giving over. And throughout the Old Testament, God describes this people, this, this, sorry, this process of giving his people over in a various different forms of captivity and suffering and hardship with the goal of their repentance that they would turn back to him. And so Paul unpacks this in three layers for us. They, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal things and God gave them over. They exchanged the truth about God for a lion and God gave them over. They exchanged the good order of God's creation and, and God gave them over. You see, when we remove God from the centre of our lives, from the throne that he deserves as Lord and, and Master of it all, we don't step out into some glorious freedom released from the shackles of his rule. No, we, we step into the captivity of our heart's idolatry. As one author has put it really helpfully, our heart is a factory for making idols. Tim Keller's the modern author, St. Augustine said something similar in the third century. We are constantly seeking to replace the God we were made to joyfully serve with idols that we're just enslaved by. 
You see, in this giving over, God gives us over to the things we desire. He gives us over to the fruit of our misplaced desires. Verse 24, to the sinful desires of their hearts for sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. The the sinful desires here, they are literally the over-desires of our hearts. God gives humanity over to the captivity of our own desires. And it's really helpful to note that that doesn't mean desire in itself is wrong. If you're visiting with us this morning, you haven't walked into a church that says, do not desire anything, be passionate about nothing, God is angry about that. No, not at all. All our desires in life point to the great desire that we were made for, to desire God himself in all his beauty and his glory. The problem is our misplaced desires. And the misplaced desire that Paul first highlights are the way that we turn each other into objects of desire. And we've all seen heaps in the secular media of late about the objectification of women and the sexualization of children. But the reality is that the natural conclusion of a failure to respect the Creator God is that we will inevitably fail to respect his image bearers, which is what we are all created to be. So this is not a passage to point out as evidence that well, God must hate sex. Look at what it says in Romans 1. Now, it's actually a passage that helps us to understand why, why sex is both so, so core and so complex for humanity. Because God created humanity, male and female, and, and as image bearers of his glory... So it is a natural step from failing to respect God as God to a failure to respect ourselves and our fellow image bearers. But let's be honest. As we read through, in particular, verse 26 and 27, I want to acknowledge the obvious, that these are pretty confronting words to read in 21st century Adelaide. They're words that speak of homosexual desire, homosexual activity, women and men engaged in it and in really strong and confronting terms. There have been many attempts to suggest that this passage means something other than what it seems to say on the face of it. But it does actually simply say what we can read in front of us, that God teaches that homosexual desire is a distortion of God's created order And homosexual sex is condemned by Scripture. And friends, this is shocking in 21st century Adelaide. So I want to say two brief things, recognising that this is a topic that it's almost impossible to treat well, briefly. So first, a, a word to us all, that as we see Paul unpacking for us this spiral of God giving over... Homosexual sex is used here as illustrative of a problem, not the definition of the problem. That is to say, Paul draws his analysis at this point because it it graphically illustrates his point about misdirected passions and the goodness of God's created order without saying that this is the only thing he could have said about misdirected passions. It's illustrative of his point without being the only thing he could say about his point. Secondly, I I actually want to speak to those of us here who might experience same-sex attraction. Because 
I think it's very easy, even natural, to read a passage like this, and particularly in the history of the church over the last thousand years or so, and to feel that you are being singled out more than everyone else, that somehow your desires are more deprived than everybody else's. And I actually want to say to those who might have engaged in homosexual activity, your sin is no greater than mine. And you are no further from the grace of God than anyone else in this room. And friends, we can say this with confidence because this confronting paragraph, well, it's not actually the end of the shocking news of, of human sin, is it? It rolls on. Verse 28, we read that God gave humanity over a third time. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then what follows, it's this long list, this catalogue of human unrighteousness. But did you see what they all had in common? The, the, the attitudes and the behaviour that we show towards fellow human beings that all flows out of our attitude to our common creator. And there's a challenge in that for us. Because I doubt that many of us think of envy or arrogance or gossip as depraved. But that's how they're described here. It's a brutal picture of our human unrighteousness. And it sounds like the kind of thing that most people expect God to be furious about. You know, at the end, you get to verse 32, and the highest unrighteousness of all, well, it's, it's not merely what we do ourselves, but it's encouraging others too. It's perpetuating the cycle that was summed up in verse 18, the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. At the end of it all... It's not actually just the wrath of God that's being revealed now in the present. But the, verse 32 points us forward and, and the rest of the Bible points us forward to a death and judgment that is to come. It's heavy going. So how do we tie it all together? Well, first friends, I think we have to understand that the attitudes and the behaviours that we've read about in that final paragraph, the sorts of things that... We look on at the world and, and we think it's, it's all falling apart. We look on at our relationships and we know they're falling apart. They are just the symptoms of the underlying diagnosis. Our misdirected worship of things that aren't God. And we need to remember that it's not that he's being petty, petty or, or kind of cranky. Or he's not some slighted lover that's just sort of chip on his shoulder. No, it's actually much worse than that. <laughs> Because he is genuinely the only thing, the only one who can hold up under the weight of our worship. He's the only one that can really satisfy and delight and be relied upon. God really is the only one that's worthy of our worship and our service at the very core of our being. So friends, one implication is that if we read ourselves in any of what we see in the second half of this passage, it's because we actually need to consider where we are in the first half. If we've seen in verse 24 to 32 a catalogue of things that you think, yes, I am there, it's because we need to do some deep digging and, and self-reflection on the first half. And so some helpful questions to pose. What things in your life... Would it feel like hell to go without? Whose approval 
do you most crave? Or whose disapproval do you most fear? What source of security do you most fear going without? If that wasn't in my life, the world would be a scary place. Friends, if you follow the threads of these thoughts, I think we start to see that, yeah, they actually do show us where we've, we've, we've wandered away from the respect and the thanks of God that he is due because we look to other things. That's our core issue. And the spiral that follows is an expression of God's wrath, yes, but in his mercy and in his love, his just and fair and measured anger towards his creatures, we willfully suppress the truth of him and yet he wants to keep pointing us back to our need of him. See, any picture that we have of God that ignores his righteous wrath against sin, well, we're just... We're shortchanging ourselves and we're dishonouring him. We might feel more comfortable with a less angry God, but we need to hear the warning of this passage and the consequences of suppressing the truth about God. And friends, all of this really does point us back to the goodness of the gospel. I hope you can feel that, even if you're sitting here and if it's weighty for you, I've been sitting in this for the last few weeks and, and friends, I am so thankful to the, for the goodness of the gospel. Because it shows us what a, a wonderful thing it is that Jesus came as the king to save and to rescue, not to destroy. Look at this shockingly bleak picture of the human heart. And I think it actually helps us to see how gloriously bright and wonderful Jesus is. And it reminds us of that connection that we saw from verse 17 to 18. God reveals his righteousness in the gospel because actually... Our unrighteousness is there for everyone to see. And we cannot fix this problem ourselves. We need him to step in and to give us what is his alone. And see, for all of this, I think what we need to remember is that buried in the midst of this bleak picture of humanity is the sobering reminder that we each need to, to repent, to turn, to, to stop heading in one direction away from God and actually to say, I want to be a person who does respect, who does thank the God at the centre of it all. And I think in that there's a final warning because you might have noticed that throughout this whole passage, Paul has written about the sin of them and all that they have done. Now, it's true that the humble heart will see themselves in them, that this is your story and mine. The humble heart will recognise these misdirected passions, that, that they're our own, expressed in all kinds of ways in our own lives. The humble heart will be driven to repentance. But there is a danger here for the hard heart. And Paul's actually really deliberately setting us up for this so that we see it in ourselves because the hard, the self-righteous heart, it will only see those people in this passage. Sorry, not those people. Those people out there. That's what the hard-hearted person will see. Or it might see that person over there on the other side of church. 
Because Paul has been very intentional to draw out our own tendency to kind of delete ourselves from the picture. And I've got to confess that at many points I find myself only seeing them in a passage like this. So friends, as we come to the end of it, if you only see others in this, let's pray for a soft heart. But perhaps you feel like you've just been exposed. You're feeling kind of stripped bare by the confronting words of this passage and the glare of the spotlight is uncomfortable. Either way, let's thank God for his goodness to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, you come to us with heavy words for us today. Uh, And yet we know that you are a God who is rich in mercy. And so we trust that these are words that we need to hear. Father, if this is the first time we've stumbled across a passage like this and we're just grappling with what it means for people to even claim that you are like this, we pray that you would help us to see your glory all around us, that you are indeed worthy of our honour, and our thanks. Father, if we've sat here this morning looking at all of these people and the things that they do and, and your wrath upon them, Father, we pray that you would bless us with a, a soft heart to see that we are actually in the lineup of human unrighteousness, that this is a picture of our heart too. And Father, if actually we've been really confronted because we feel this is, a, this is a passage that is all about us and our struggles and our conflicted desires and our longing to be different and the pain and the grief that we feel in light of it, Lord God, we thank you for grace. We thank you that just last week we read that in Jesus your righteousness is revealed because you know our unrighteousness. In Jesus, you offer us what we can never attain for ourselves. And you offer it as a free gift, simply by receiving it with thanks and with praise. So we pray that you'd help us to do that this day and every day as we honour you and we thank you for all of your glory and especially to us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.